Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. Today's case is from Calgary and one that makes me give my head a scratch. And I think it makes the detectives in the case give their head a scratch too. This is the death of Craig Kellaway. Craig Kellaway was born in Glace Bay, which is in eastern Nova Scotia, on May 28, 1981, to his parents Harvey and Monica. And Craig was a bit of a miracle baby. Monica and Harvey had struggled with infertility for eight years before the sudden and unexpected arrival of little Craig, who was described by his mom as a very, very active boy. He played um, Little League hockey and was always just busy, busy, busy. He graduated from high school from Glace Bay High in 1999, and then he went on to St. Francis Xavier University and got his bachelor's in kinetics, which I think is like sports medicine. And then he went on to Acadia University in 2005 to get his education degree. And shortly after he graduated, he suddenly made a move to Calgary. And I think it was kind of a shock and maybe a bit of a disappointment to his mom and dad, but they were supportive in whatever he decided he wanted to do. So they kept in touch with him with daily phone calls. And once that he was in Calgary, he started working as a math and science teacher with the Calgary Board of Education at David Thompson School, which is a junior high or a middle school. He was a really dedicated teacher, spent his free time tutoring and being involved with the school sports. He continued to vacation in the summers in Cape Breton, and he played also in a teacher's hockey league. Uh, he just remained very active and athletic. And now one thing I just need you to remember at this point is that no one has been able to dig up any bad information on Craig. There were no scandals. His girlfriends were all of legal age. There's no exes had anything bad or terrible to say about him. No secret life that anyone could find. No criminal history, nothing like that. And his students uh, spoke very highly of him. Now, after moving to Calgary, he started a relationship with a woman, and together they had a son named Blake, who was born in December of 2012. And that relationship didn't work out in the long run, but he maintained a relationship with his son, who at that time was an infant, and saw him quite often. Greg was, or Craig was 
completely devoted to uh, his little son, Blake, and considered him really the meaning in his life. And by 2013, Craig was 31, and he'd found a new love interest, and he'd purchased a home. And at that time, it was a very, very new neighborhood of Auburn Bay. So the the home was actually being built to their specifications. And Craig and his girlfriend, who has remained um, anonymous. Now, she's named in the court documents, but not in the media. So I'm going to maintain her privacy for her. But anyways, they couldn't be happier about the upcoming completion and when they could finally move into their new house. On Saturday, May 4th, which was very shortly after they had moved in, it was unseasonably warm that day. Um, as we've seen here in Calgary this year, it's kind of a crapshoot for weather, but it was very nice that particular May day, like barbecue weather kind of nice. So over the fence of their new house in their backyard, they met their neighbors from two doors down who were out on their back deck, Nicholas Raspberry and his wife, who has also remained anonymous. The couples were both around the same age and Craig thought, you know, this is great. We've got new friends right in the neighborhood. Now, Craig was always super outgoing, and he had no problem making new friends, so he invited Nicholas and his wife over for a barbecue later that night. So, like any other Saturday afternoon, he FaceTimed with his parents and told them about the barbecue, and then he told them he he was going to spend a few hours with his little guy, and then take him back to his ex's house, and then they were going to have this barbecue. So Monica and Harvey expected to hear from him around 9 p.m., which was his usual nighttime Uh, nightly call time but when they didn't hear from him they just figured that he was busy with the company that he had had over and um and that was exactly what they were doing at that time they were having this uh barbecue so nicholas nicholas and his wife came over that evening and they they had they did do some barbecuing and they watched hockey and they enjoyed a few adult beverages now from the accounts of both nick's wife and craig's girlfriend the night was a ton of fun. Everybody was having a really great time and getting along very well. So sometime later in the evening, the gathering moved from Craig's house over to Nick's house. Why it moved over there, I don't know. Maybe Craig ran out of beer. Or Nick wanted to show them something about the layout compared to theirs or something. Who knows? But I can tell you that both Craig and Nick consumed quite a bit of alcohol that night. So at a little bit later in the evening... Craig's girlfriend took their dog home and then was going home to bed after that. And Nick's wife went upstairs to bed. I'm not exactly sure of the timing of them leaving, but it was likely around 1030 at night. There is a photo that was taken right around 1030. And the photo appears to be taken by someone rather than like a selfie of the two of them. They've got their arm, this is the two men. So Nick and Craig, they've got their two arms around each other, huge, big smiles are goofing off. It's this is obviously one of those drinking photos. It's one of those ones that you would post on Facebook thinking it's hilarious at the time. And the next morning you think, oh my God, like I'm never drinking that much again. Um, So I'm thinking that one of the women took the photo and then said, you know, peace out, have fun, I'm going to bed. And only minutes later, like literally minutes later, this call came in to 911. There's a guy stabbed multiple times by me. Oh, my God. Okay, so we do have the paramedics on the way. I need to ask you some questions, okay? Are you with the patient now? Yes, he's right here, but I don't want to go near him. He tried to... Okay, how old is he? I don't know. Uh, 30s. Okay, is he awake? Yeah, he's 
Is he breathing? Yes, barely. Okay, we do have the paramedics on the way, okay? Okay. All right. When did this happen? Sir, when did this happen? Just like five minutes ago. Okay. Jesus Christ. Okay. Is there any serious bleeding? Yeah, all over, everywhere. All over. Jesus Christ, fuck you, man. Okay, what part? I stabbed him everywhere. (laughs) Okay, sir. Is there more than one wound? Yeah, I can Okay. <laughs> Sir, listen to me very carefully, okay? We have lots of help on the way. Us talking is not going to slow them down. Oh, my God, he's gone. Pardon me? Oh, my God, hurry up. Okay, so we do have help already on the way, okay? Now, when help comes, is it going to be safe for us to go in? Yes, yes, I'm there. I'm opening my front door. Okay. So when the ambulance and the police arrive, they find a horrific amount of blood in the kitchen in the living room. Nick's sitting at like a kitchen counter. It's like an island with seats around it. And Craig is on the living room floor gasping for air and he's covered head to toe in blood. Unfortunately, Craig died on his way to the hospital and Nick was taken in right away to be questioned by Detective Trish Allen. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. The girlfriend once again took the dog and said she was going home. So it was the three of us, my wife there as well. And then um, my wife went up to bed. And we continued, we, we stayed downstairs. And, um, and then at some point I just felt like, the night was drawing to a close and I'm not sure if I said I was going to go to bed or if I said I had to take the dogs out to pee, but I kind of remember just kind of making it clear that like the night was kind of over. And then, uh, it's, it's like just everything, everything changed mood. You know, I was, I was drunk having fun and then all of a sudden I was sober and, he had me by the throat with my shirt twisted up and up against my counter and trying to like had had his one hand like always by my face threatening to punch me and telling me to stop moving and to but what happened to change the mood now i'm not sure if you caught this part of the 911 call so i'm just going to play it again here okay what part Nick says that what changed the mood is Craig suddenly threatening to rape Nick and his wife. And to like, let him have sex with me. Like I was surprised. I'm not a small guy, but he was manhandling me. And, uh, I was ready to just start swinging. And then he was started. Said, Your wife's upstairs. She's next. 
my counter's like this, and I'm in the back corner, and right beside us, and right there's a knife block. And I had separation, and I grabbed a knife, and I, and I, I stabbed him right, like reached around and got him in the back a couple times. And then I, it's, it is, that's kind of blurry. And I, I think at one point either the knife fell or it broke or something. And I remember, I think I grabbed another one and was pushing him away. And we, we made our way into the, into like our, our kitchen is connected to our living room. We made our way to the living room. Okay. He fell and it was like, it was over. He fell. I was done. All I remember is putting the knife back on the counter, grabbing my phone and calling 911 and. Now, I know I said nobody dug up any secret life on the part of Craig, but you and I both know that secret lives are a reality, so I'm going to give Nick the benefit of the doubt here. Personally, I don't think Craig could make it to 31 years old without some kind of history of of violence that would point to him being at least capable of raping. And I, and I know that rape has nothing to do with sexual orientation. So a man with a girlfriend and a baby doesn't preclude him from being sexually violent towards a man. But I, I just don't buy it. But I, like I said, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt and saying that at least in Nick's mind frame at the time, with the amount of alcohol that was consumed by both of them, that he genuinely felt that whatever Craig had said to him that in his mind, it was Nick or Craig and that he was in fear for his life. Toxicology on Craig showed that he had a blood alcohol content of 0.3, which is six times higher than the current limit of 0.05 for driving a vehicle here in Alberta. Anyways, so he was clearly intoxicated and like, who knows what he said to Nick? Maybe they got into it and let's let's even put it on Craig and say that he made some inappropriate comment and they had words about it and Craig said something like, I'm going to fuck you up. And in Nick's drunken state, he thought he said, fuck you in the ass. Like, I, I, who knows? I don't know. But here is where Nick's story starts to go a little bit astray. According to Nick's testimony in the court documents, it's noted that he said that Kellaway was stronger than him. He had one hand twisting his shirt to hold him while the other was balled into a fist below Nick's face, ready to punch him. And Nick reached back to this knife block that's in the on the kitchen counter, grabbed a knife and stabbed Craig in the back. Now he's not sure at that time, whether the stabbing worked or had any effect on him. So the fight worked its way towards the living room. And at some point, Nick thought that the knife broke. And so he grabbed a second knife from the kitchen block. But that would mean that he had to get away from Craig and move from the living room back to the kitchen to grab a second knife. He did acknowledge that he stabbed Craig multiple times before Craig fell over the ottoman in the living room, which is where he was found. Once he was down on the ground, Nick returned to the kitchen and that's where he called 911. He also claims that he doesn't remember using a third knife. Um, He thought maybe he had the third knife for protection after Craig was down, but he doesn't recall using it to stab Craig. Now, the crime scene and the autopsy... Craig suffered 37 stab wounds in total, 
32 of them were in the back. He also had significant defense wounds, including one on his thumb, where it was almost severed, and there were three separate knives used in the attack. Now, two of the knives had been broken with pieces still left in Craig's body, and the largest knife, the one that was left on the kitchen table, had Craig's blood on it and was bent to a 45 degree angle. Now, these are not flimsy knives. These are the ones that you would pull out of your kitchen block. So you've got the one, two of them look like, you know, for butchering meat, you got the, the, the main, we call it the main one, because it's the one we use for almost everything. And then we have the meat one, which is almost like a small cleaver. And then the fillet knife, that really long, sharp one. All three of those knives were used in this attack. Now, Tara Jones, who's the assistant chief medical examiner for Alberta, in her report, she stated that eight of those sharp force injuries entered the chest cavity and six of them went through bone. Among the significant damages, there were wounds to the liver, the lungs, the small intestines, the juggler, and the aorta, and one of the worst wounds was to the aorta. Uh, that's the major artery that supplies oxygenated blood to the upper half of your body. And there was also a seven and a half centimeter stab wound to the jugular vein, which would have caused enough blood loss to lead to Craig's death on its own. She says, quote, the effect of all the injuries in total would lead to significant blood loss. The cause of death, in my opinion, were the multiple stab and incised wounds. She also said in her report that there appeared to be a number of defensive wounds on Craig's forearms and his hands. She noted in her report that there were pieces of metal that looked in the autopsy photos, they look like to be the tips of the knives that had actually broken off inside Craig's body after when they struck the bones. There were several other scrapes and abrasions which could have occurred from coming into contact with any number of objects in the home or during a struggle. So most notably, she testified that at least one of the wounds was inflicted after Craig's heart had stopped beating. And interestingly, there were no defensive wounds of any kind on Nicholas. There's also no evidence of a sexual assault. And Nick admitted that. He said that he was also, that he was never hit. He was just grabbed by his collar and threatened. And he says that he felt that it was him or me. So investigators would have expected some defensive wounds to explain to explain the amount of force that was used. So Trish Allen, who's the detective in this case, she said it's just not a normal progression of conversation to conflict. So when she was questioning him, she said that she asked, like, you know, were you guys talking about sex? And she pointed out to him, like, he didn't try to have sex with him. Like, he wasn't trying to grab at his pants or do anything like that. He wasn't doing anything sexual, wasn't talking about anything sexual. and. Nick's answer to that was not yet. He said that he trusted himself and then he felt like he did what he had to do. Now, police believe it was second degree murder, that even if Craig started it, some at some point it changed and it became complete overkill. However, remember that Nick didn't have any criminal history either and was just a normal guy up until that moment. So we have two normal guys no history of violence with either one of them. 
it's just kind of crazy how they wound up where they did. And the, the police came to Craig's parents, Monica and Harvey's place, early the next morning around 7 and had to give them the news of Craig's death. But they weren't able to tell him or to tell them how or who or what. So she didn't know. She thought maybe it was a car accident or something. At first, they had to attend all their court hearings remotely because, of course, they live in Glace Bay. When she learned to the extent of Craig's injuries, Monica is convinced that it was rage. She says that he didn't deserve that. And 37 stab wounds is it. It's not self-defense. It is rage. So Nicholas Raspberry was charged with second degree murder initially, and he spent 13 months in custody before he had been granted bail just before his trial was to start. So he was actually out on bail during the trial. He pled not guilty. His defense lawyers, Hirsch Walsh and Gavin Walsh, um, they only called one witness. Forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Sergio Santa, who testified about the brain's fight or flight response. And that was it. It was a trial by judge only. He was found guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter in October of 2015. And he was sentenced to seven years, which is kind of the average sentence for manslaughter. But with time served, it was like five years and four months that he had left. But he was granted bail at that time because they were filing an immediate appeal. So the conditions on his bail release were to abstain from alcohol, report any new relationships with women and men, sexual in nature or not, and to not have any contact with the Kellaway family. In December of 2015, he was arrested in a traffic stop in Banff. Uh, on an alcohol and obstruction charge, his lawyer said, quote, there seems to be a constant effort to attract negative publicity in regards to Mr. Raspberry. At this point, we don't know anything about it, but I can only assume that it's trivial. And the timing of it is a little bit suspect because he was stopped on that traffic stop just one day before his sentencing hearing. Now, the charges on the, in that case were stayed and he was fined $7,500. His appeal for manslaughter was denied. So in March 2018, he had to turn himself in and go back to prison to serve out his sentence, which uh, was about five years again. So he was granted day parole two years later, uh, just for a test period of like six months. Now, during that time, he started working with a friend's company, and then he was eventually able to get a full-time job in his original field of engineering. In June 2020, he applied for full parole, which he had to do virtually because of COVID. At the hearing, Nick said that he doesn't want to be defined by, by what happened and that he's truly sorry, which was, according to Monica, a pile of BS. A 2019 risk assessment that was done on him stated that he had limited insight into the seriousness of his crime, but was considered a low risk to reoffend. But a true assessment was really quite difficult because it was such an uncharacteristic event in his life, um, and he just didn't really want to talk about it. According to the parole board, he had also been able to spend time with his family and and a quote network of positive supports while following COVID-19 public health guidelines. He has also completed a reintegration and life skills program. His counselor described him as demonstrating the, quote, appropriate skills in dealing with stress. 
The board, um, the parole board, stated that by granting him full parole, it does not lose sight of the nature and gravity of the index offense. So as of the time of this recording, he is likely out and about and living in a neighborhood possibly near you. Now, let's talk about the sentence and stuff. And what is this thing called provocation? And what's that all about? Now, remember, this is in Canada. So I'm only able to comment on Canadian laws regarding provocation, which is quite a bit different, likely than the stand your ground or some of the US laws about self defense and that kind of thing. Under Canadian law, provocation is defined as a wrongful act or an insult that is such that is of such a nature as to be sufficient to deprive an ordinary person of the power of self-control. And it is provocation if the accused acted on it on the sudden and before there was time for his passion to cool. In this case, the trial judge did find that there was some believability to the self-defense. Now, according to the Court of Appeal sentencing documents, that trial judge found that Nick reasonably believed force was being used against him and acted to protect himself and his wife. However, he also found that the amount of force used was so far out of proportion um, to that force or the threat that it was basically unreasonable. And he therefore concluded that it was not fully self-defense per se, but that the prosecutors in the case weren't able to disprove that he had been provoked into murdering Craig. So provocation reduces the culpability from second degree to manslaughter. Now there's three requirements for it to be considered provocation or self-defense. The accused must reasonably believe that force or a threat or threat of force is being used against him or someone else. The subjective purpose for responding to the threat must be to protect oneself or others, and the act committed must be objectively reasonable in the circumstances. So the judge said that if Craig threatened to beat him up and commit like anal sex basically on him and his wife, that Nick had good reason to defend themselves from such an attack. The onus in these cases is on the prosecution to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. The judge said, quote, Raspberry did so believe, and it was reasonable for him to hold that belief. Um, Raspberry's actions were for the purpose of defending himself and his wife. But when it came to the reasonableness of Nick's actions, he said, now this is all a quote, um, I find myself skeptical about the versions of events put forth by Raspberry. He fails to refer to or explain the use of a third knife. He has not explained the very numerous stab or slash wounds found on the victim or why the wounds are to the victim's front, back and side. He has not explained the defensive wounds to Kellaway's arm. The accused statement is not helpful here. He professes no recollection of a third knife being used, though the evidence clearly shows that all three knives were used as weapons in the stabbings and slashings. All three have Kellaway's blood on them. The accused statement also offers no evidence as to why there are stab wounds to Kellaway's back and to his front and to his side. In other words, the accused fails to provide us any evidence as to why so many wounds in so many places using three knives had to be inflicted other than to say he stopped when Kellaway was down. 
I am clearly of the view in this case that the amount of force used by Raspberry of 23 stab wounds and 14 slash wounds and the use of three knives in these events is so far out of proportion to the force or threat against the accused as to render the accused actions to be unreasonable. Many of the injuries would have had the effect on their own of disabling the victim from continuing with the threat. There is no reasonable explanation given as to why these very numerous stabbings and slashings continue to occur. I am satisfied that long before all of these stabs and slashings were complete, the victim would have been disabled. The continuation of the knife attacks quickly becomes excessive and unreasonable. It was unreasonable in this case. But in the end, the judge concluded that... Um, quote, Raspberry's account of the events does raise within me a reasonable doubt. That is to say, the evidence which he gives may be his recollect recollections accurately recited. It is possible that he was defending himself from an assault and threats from Kellaway, and there is no evidence brought by the Crown which disproves that version beyond a reasonable doubt. Accordingly, Raspberry's statement as to what caused the chaos between him and Kellaway is not disproven by the Crown. So that is why it was declared manslaughter. Monica and Harvey, of course, were completely outraged, saying that Nick basically got away with murder. Blake today is growing up to look and act just like Craig. Monica says that she sees Craig a lot in him. And fortunately, they are able to see Blake quite often and to watch him grow up. And that was the murder, manslaughter, the craziness that was the death of Craig Kellaway. I will always want to have been a fly on the wall that night in Nick's kitchen to know what really happened. Unfortunately, we are never going to hear Craig's version, uh, and I think his name has been forever sullied in this, um, but I'm pretty sure it didn't go down the way Nick says. I'm not, I'm not saying he wasn't threatened or Craig maybe wasn't the aggressor initially, but there's no way it went down that way. Anyways, this is one for you to mull around. Maybe you have some theories. I'd certainly love to hear them. Before I go, don't forget that you get free delivery on your first order with Instacart by clicking the link in the show notes below, which lets them know that I sent you. Groceries delivered without the hassle of carts with that one wheel that won't turn, or the guy that stands in front of the salsa aisle staring blankly at it and won't move out of your way. You can order from multiple stores in one single order, available in 5,500 cities in the U.S. and Canada. And as always, thank you so very much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.